John chapter 13. We'll look at the first 17 verses together. I'll read those and then we'll pray again for God's help this morning. John chapter 13, beginning in verse 1. Now before the feast of the Passover, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, that he would depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, the devil, having already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come forth from God and was going back to God, got up from the supper and laid aside his garments and taking a towel, he girded himself. Then he poured water into the basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. So he came to Simon Peter and he said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? And Jesus answered and said to him, what I do, you do not realize now, but you will understand hereafter. And Peter said to him, never shall you wash my feet. And Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no part with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, then wash not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, he who was, excuse me, he who has bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not all of you. For he knew the one who was betraying him. For this reason, he said, not all of you are clean. So when he had washed their feet and taken his garments and reclined at the table again, he said to them, do you know what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, the Lord and the teacher, washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I gave you an example that you also should do as I did to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a slave is not greater than his master, nor is the one who is sent greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. Let's pray. Father, we, we pray that you would open our eyes that we may see wonderful things in your word. And Father, we pray that your gospel come this morning, not in word only, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Our focus this morning is that we would see and mimic the blessed union of Jesus' selfless love for the saints and his unwavering obedience to his father, married in his death on the cross. Let me repeat that. Our aim this morning is to see and mimic the blessed union of Jesus's selfless, 
love for the saints and his unwavering obedience to his father. Married in his death on the cross. The most loving person to ever walk the face of the earth is Jesus. The most knowledgeable person to ever walk the face of the earth is Jesus. The most committed person to ever walk the face of the earth is Jesus. The most selfless person, the most humble person, the most sacrificial person, the most obedient person, the most blessed person to ever walk the face of the earth is Jesus. And today we will see in John's gospel, the most loving, humble, knowledgeable, committed, selfless, sacrificial, obedient, blessed person in the world will ever know. We'll see Jesus. Today's text is really a pivotal turn in John's gospel in our series on this book entitled Believe and Live. For about a year and a half, we've preached the first 12 chapters covering almost 33 years of Jesus' life, full of teaching, miracles, all kinds of interactions, certainly confrontations with the Pharisees. We see all the attributes that I mentioned a minute ago on, of Jesus on display. And we estimate that in roughly the next 10 months to a year, we'll preach the next nine chapters that cover, that cover the final week of Jesus' life. So 12 chapters, year and a half, 33 years, the next 10 to 10 months, 10 to 12 months, we'll cover the last week of Jesus' life on earth. And John, like the other gospel authors, slows down the speed of the story so that he can zero in on the finer details of the hour for which Jesus had come, namely his death on the cross. Look with me, if you will, in John chapter 13, beginning in verse 1. We'll look at the first three verses here, and we'll see in these first three verses the knowledge of our loving Jesus, the knowledge of our loving Jesus. It says this, now before the feast of the Passover, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, that he would depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, the devil, having already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, to betray him. And Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come forth from God and was going back to God. In these first three verses, we're informed about Jesus' knowledge. In verse 1, we're told that Jesus knew that his hour had come. He knew the hour had arrived so that when the triune God determined that Christ would condescend and come to earth, that he would be born of a virgin Mary and that he would live 33 years of life that we've walked through together as a church over the last year and a half. Jesus knew all that would transpire so that he could get to this hour. He knew that. And he knew that he would depart out of this world 
and return to the Father. In verse 3, we're told that Jesus knew that the Father had given all things into his hands so that what Jesus came to accomplish, he knew the Father had given that to him, that he would accomplish exactly what he set out to accomplish. And verse 3 also tells us that he knew he had come forth from God and was going back to God. Why is it so important that we know what Jesus was mindful of in the beginning of today's text? Because the knowledge of Jesus was carrying with him both affections for the Father and committed actions on behalf of the triune God. It's quite remarkable if we look at what Jesus knew, all that would transpire, what he does. Jesus knew that his hour had come, the hour for which he was sent, the hour of his coming death on the cross. He was about to be sacrificially murdered. He knows this. He knows what awaits him. But I want you to pay close attention to what other knowledge accompanies this reality. Yes, the hour has come. His death awaits. And that upon his crucifixion, it tells us twice that he would be returning to the Father. Don't think for a second that this reunion with the Father is not the sustaining motivation for Jesus enduring the cross. He can't wait to get back with the Father. If we are tempted to miss Jesus' motivation in verse 1, John repeats it for us again in verse 3, explaining Jesus' knowledge of two particular facts. His mission would not fail and that he would return to glory with the Father. He knew that that awaited him. We could easily focus on the love that Jesus has for the saints in this text. And I'm not saying that we should walk past that quickly. That's a very significant fact that we should drill down into. But I do not want us to miss or ignore that Jesus' thoughts here are not primarily fixed on the souls of men, but rather on his reunion with the Father. Now the practical, man-centered person that we tend to be, I know I tend to be, gravitates toward God's love for us here as well in some cases it should right we shouldn't miss this but we want to take careful steps to remind ourselves of the glorious love that Jesus displays for the father here in this text for it is out of our understanding of the love that resides within the trinity that we better comprehend God's abundant love for us Jesus longed to be with the father I do want to make some important notes before we move past these first three verses. Jesus, it tells us, loved his own, having loved his own who were in the world. Those are sweet words, his own, that any man would belong to him is amazing. That he would possess his own is sweet news 
We ought to entertain that thought often that a rebellious sinner like myself could belong to Jesus is good news beyond our imagination. The second note that I want us to see is the extent of which Jesus' love for us extends. The text says he loved them to the end. This is an interesting English translation. Every version that we look at essentially translates it the same way. Jesus certainly loved his own, particularly the disciples in this moment who are there with him, to the end of his life. He does love his own to the end. But there's a deeper connotation in the Greek that I believe the English translation just can't quite put onto paper. The end would more accurately be translated to the uttermost or eternally. See, he didn't just love us to the length of his life, but he loved us with everything that he had. And that that love extended beyond just Christ's death on the cross. We know that he rose from the grave. We know that he promises that we'll gain an inheritance if we put our faith in him, and that inheritance is eternal life. John preaches that over and over in this book. Jesus doesn't just want to love us to the end of his earthly life, but he loved us with the uttermost, completely, to the fullest extent of God's love, both the depth of its strength and the measured length of its time, eternal. Ephesians chapter 3, 17 through 19 tells us this, and that you, this is Paul praying for the church at Ephesus, this is what he prays, that you would be rooted and grounded in love, that you would be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to all the fullness of God. Jesus loves us to the uttermost. Well, those first three verses also tell us one more thing that we certainly need to take note of because it plays out in the text. The final note I want to make in those first three verses is I want us to see in verse 2 that Satan puts into the heart of Judas the desire to betray Jesus. We don't just see in these first three verses the knowledge of our loving Jesus, but I want us to see as we continue in the text, number two, the humility of heaven's emptying servant. The humility of heaven's emptying servant. This is what it tells us in verse four. Jesus, knowing all the things that we just talked about, got up from supper and lays aside his garment and takes a towel and he girds himself. And then he pours water into a basin and begins to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. Imagine this scene, if you will. We've already had multiple prayers in today's service that were textually informed. The filthiness of these feet and the filthiness of the hearts of the men whose feet Jesus was about to wash are only representative of everybody in this room. Imagine the scene. Jesus knowing that Satan had put into the heart of Judas that they had plotted against him to betray him. D.I. Carson says this 
about this portion of the text. We might have expected Jesus to defeat the devil in an immediate and flashy confrontation and to devastate Judas with an unstoppable blast of divine wrath. But instead, Jesus washes his disciples' feet, including the feet of the betrayer, Judas. What humility is discovered in Jesus' actions? Even among Jewish slaves, the task of washing feet was not required. That humiliating distinction among the Jews was only for the Gentile dogs. Jewish slaves wouldn't even wash Jewish feet. They weren't required to. They weren't allowed to. It was too humiliating. Only a Gentile slave should wash a Jewish man's feet according to the custom of their day. In verse 4, Jesus removes his garments and girds himself with a towel to adopt the dress, the attire of the lowest of the slaves. He puts on the most humiliating garb known to man. He humbles himself. Is this not exactly what the condescension of Jesus is all about? That he would set aside his royal garments? That he would condescend and take on flesh, human flesh? Humble himself? Is Jesus not stepping out of heaven and dressing himself in the garment of humanity, an enormous act of humility? So what he's doing in this room with the disciples is only a snippet. It's only a glance of the real heart of Jesus. The humility of washing their feet is a drop in the bucket to the fact that he's even in that room as a man. It's already been prayed, but Philippians 2 hits on this so well. Having this attitude or have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of man. Being found in appearance as a man, the Bible tells us he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That's humility. Paul must have had this moment, this, this upper room moment, this foot washing moment in mind when he wrote the, to the Philippian church. And he does something wonderful for, for us in this letter. Paul ties the symbolism of the foot washing moment that Jesus has with the disciples to the greater act of humility, Jesus' obedience unto death. No greater love or service has ever been carried out than Jesus' mission to come to earth and dwell among rebellious God-haters and then willingly die on a cross for their sins. I'm not trying to downplay Jesus washing these men's feet. I'm just trying to point you to what that room pointed to. Jesus on a cross. The humility of Jesus in the foot-washing moment is just a flash in the life of Jesus that encompasses his cross death, humility, and quite frankly, beyond my comprehension, I can barely fathom such selfless emptying. 
I admit that his behavior in this room, washing these disciples' feet, is foreign to me. We just don't act that way. That's not who we are. And it undoubtedly caught the disciples off guard. And we'll find out later in the text, we ought to to mimic the humility of Christ in our relationship with others. We don't just want to see the knowledge of our loving Jesus and the humility of heaven's emptying servant. But I want us to see in verses 6 through 11, the wisdom of our cleansing Savior. The wisdom of our cleansing Savior. says this in verse 6, So he came to Simon Peter and he said to them, Lord, do you wash my feet? Do you wash my feet? Jesus answered and said to him, what I do, you do not realize now, but you will understand hereafter. Peter said to him, never shall you wash my feet. Very emphatically, Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no part with me. I don't know how many feet Jesus washed before he got to Peter. I don't know how many remained. I'm supposing somewhere in the middle, he gets to Peter. And I have no doubt that as he knelt before one disciple after the other to wash their feet, they were embarrassed by his actions. I would have been humiliated. Can you imagine the disciples' uneasiness at this point? Their teacher, not a Gentile dog, not someone who's their equal, but their teacher, and more than that, who they believe to be the Messiah, is washing their feet. Can you imagine the uneasiness easiness what an uncomfortable moment you've been there before that that moment you've been in a room where there's just this awkwardness and you don't know what to do and so in stunned silence you're agonizing on the inside how do I get out of this how do I get out of this awkward situation but in stunned silence you just hope it passes that's where the disciples find themselves in this moment just hoping that this will soon pass. For most of them, they were stunned in silence. But here comes Peter. He can't sit quietly. He's as stunned and as embarrassed as the rest of the disciples, but he's going to say something. He has to speak. He's obligated in his mind. And his... I believe very sincere and well-motivated thoughts and even actions, they're just misguided. He objects and he misses the point entirely. Peter's objection became the teaching point for Jesus. He says, Lord, you're not going to wash my feet. Jesus tells him, you don't understand, Peter. I have to do this 
and you'll understand later. Peter says, you're not washing my feet. Peter understands this is the Messiah. But Jesus responds, if I do not wash you, you have no part with me. He's preaching the gospel. Jesus is telling him, Peter, you may have good theology. You may understand who I am. You may have in your mind this good motivation. But you need me. You need me to wash your feet. I must cleanse you. You're not good enough, Peter. Your theology is not good enough. Your righteous deeds aren't good enough. You need me to wash you. Jesus says, what I do, you do not realize now, but you will understand hereafter. Well, that principle bleeds all over Scripture. We may not know what Jesus is doing. We may not realize, we may not understand in the moment, but a day's coming where everything comes to light. Carson says this about Jesus in this moment. He says, Jesus expects the disciples to submit to the washing in faith. It was going to require faith here. It was going to require faith on Peter's part to allow Jesus to wash his feet. And though they don't understand now, they will in time grasp the magnitude of this moment. They have to have thought back several times. As a matter of fact, in my mind, I know I'm, I'm, I'm imagining here, but Peter shares this story with Paul. Paul meditates on everything that Peter has said to him, and he pins Philippians chapter 2. Understanding the humility of Christ. The humility that Jesus demonstrates in this moment is only, again, a snippet of the humility that he's demonstrating on the cross just a few days from here. Jesus' foot washing is the same passion that he carries with him to the cross. If the disciples were uneasy in this humble foot washing service that Jesus performed, they would certainly not understand his humble service of death on the cross in a week's time. Do you see the parallels of Jesus' attitude, his posture, his mission-mindedness between the foot washing and the cross? The same man, the same heart of love, the same passion for his own, the same purpose-driven Jesus in this room washing disciples' feet is the one that you'll see on the cross. Simon Peter says to him, verse 9, Lord, then wash not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. Sounds like a good response. But here comes Jesus again, trying to help Peter get right. Jesus said to him, he who has bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean, and you are clean but not all of you. For he knew the one who was betraying him. 
For this reason, he said, not all of you are clean. Peter's response, then wash not just my feet, but my hands and my head. It's just further proof that he still didn't understand what Jesus was teaching. The cleansing that Peter requested in this moment was not to be accomplished by the washing of feet. Jesus is not talking about feet anymore. Even if Jesus is the one doing the washing, this foot washing was not going to save Peter or anyone else. The cleansing that Jesus is speaking of is the cleansing of our sins. And it required blood. It required death. And through the blood of Christ and through his death on the cross, all of us, like the the disciples, we're a picture of their feet, filthy, gross, are wiped clean through the blood of Jesus. The foot washing only symbolized the future washing that saints would receive through faith in Jesus' death and resurrection. Again, I found Carson to be helpful here in his summary of the text. He says, Jesus' act of humility is as unnecessary as as it is stunning, accomplishes three things simultaneously. It's a display of God's love for his people. That's one. Two, it's a symbol of saving cleansing that Jesus would ultimately carry out on the cross. And number three, a model of Christian conduct. Display of love, symbol of salvation, and a model of Christian conduct. Jesus' reminder that not all are clean references Judas' presence in this moment. It's how we know he was there. Not all of you are clean. He's speaking directly to Judas. And the humility to wash your betrayer's feet is only surpassed by his willingness to die on the cross of which many of creation would not trust for their salvation. So that when Jesus is dripping blood on the cross, breathing his last, he knows men will reject the salvation that he has afforded them. So washing Judah's feet Again, that was nothing compared to what he would endure on the cross. It's just a snippet. Well, we don't just want to see the wisdom that Jesus possesses in our cleansing, but we also want to see in John chapter 13, 12 through 16, the example of the father's obedient son. The example of the father's obedient son. Verse 12 says, so when he had washed their feet, taken his garments and reclined at the table again, he said to them, do you know what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, you're right. For so I am. If I then, the Lord and the teacher, washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. Doubtless. The disciples would have been happy to wash Jesus' feet. 
I think they would have done it. But they could not conceive in their minds washing one another's feet. Peers didn't wash one another's feet. Much more then, the teacher should not be washing the feet of his followers. What was the boundary of Jesus' humility? Jesus humbles himself in this moment. To what extent was Jesus' humility demonstrated in this moment? Are there boundaries to Jesus' humility here? There are none. He loved them to the end. He loved them to the uttermost. He humbled himself to the uttermost. So let me ask you a question. What is the boundary of your humility? What is the boundary of your humility? John 13, 15 says, For I gave you an example that you also should do as I did to you. You should have the same boundary as Jesus. I'll end my D.A. Carson crush this morning with one final statement that he made. He said, Christian zeal divorced from transparent humility is hollow and pathetic. I love that. Christian zeal divorced from transparent humility is hollow and pathetic. Jesus is exemplifying for the disciples the standard conduct of the believer. Is the bar high? Absolutely. And we should strive for that. Jesus is exemplifying for the disciples the standard conduct of the believer, not just in the humble washing of feet, but listen to this, more importantly, the full devotion of the one who is sent out from the sender. He's fully devoted to the Father. Jesus was fully devoted. Everything Jesus did was to the uttermost for the Father. And he's saying we should mimic that. We should do everything to the uttermost. Humility to the uttermost. You name it. If Jesus did it, he did it to the uttermost, and we're to mimic that. Jesus was carrying out the Father's command to the fullest. He didn't hold back an ounce of full obedience to the Father. Whatever Jesus did and all that Jesus did, he did in the fullest measure to the glory of God the Father. If Christ did everything that he did to the uttermost, how much more is it necessary that we do everything God has called us to do to the uttermost? It's what Paul teaches in Philippians 2, right? Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. It is there, Jesus, on the cross, that we see in his dying a union. We see a union in Jesus of his selfless, humble love for the saints, 
He's dying on the cross so that they might be saved. Selfless, humble, love. Philippians 2, obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. We see that love for the saints married to His unwavering, obedient love to the Father. His humble, selfless love, death on the cross for the saints, is also His obedient love to the Father. So in His obedience to the Father, He's loving us through His death on the cross. Listen to this. We are called to live in that same union. At the beginning of the sermon, I said our focus this morning was this, to see and mimic the blessed union of Jesus' self-love for the saints and His unwavering obedience to His Father married in His death on the cross. My hope is that we see that and that we mimic it. That we mimic Jesus here. Verse 17 says this, If you know these things, what things? The example that Jesus sets. The selfless love that He has for the saints. The full obedience that He has to the Father. If you know these things, it's the gospel. It's the cross. If you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. Well, there's two conditional statements there. I don't know if you caught that. If that conditional word, if you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. There's two conditions. You have to know this gospel that you see in the life of Jesus. And you must do that. If you know these things, So are we called to die the cross death that Jesus died? Well, I don't think we have to hang on a cross and be crucified like Jesus in the physical sense. But rather we are to live by faith in what Christ has accomplished on the cross. To live setting the garments aside, setting the old self aside and putting on the new garments of our humble Jesus. And to live selflessly and to the uttermost in obedience to God. Or to say it another way, to live for the glory of God. There's another conditional statement that we'll find one chapter later. John chapter 14 says this, verse 15, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. That verse doesn't say, if you keep my commandments, you prove that you love me. It says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. So, do we go out and try to keep all His commandments? No, we just love the Lord. We love the Jesus that we see in Scripture. And when we do that, He conforms us. And we begin to obey like Jesus obeyed the Father unto death. 
Obedience is God glorifying. Our actions, like Jesus, should be aimed at glorifying the Father. And in doing so, we humbly serve others with all sorts of gospel benefits. See, when Jesus obeyed the Father unto death, all of humanity was offered salvation. He saves. He was just glorifying the Father through full obedience. And the result of that was His death on the cross that saves men. So I'm saying the same is true for us. Our actions, like Jesus, should be aimed at glorifying the Father. And when we do that, there's gospel implications. So let me ask a question. Through your life, are others being pointed to Christ? Are other people pointed to Christ through your life? I'm not asking about your theology right now. Can you converse about Christ with those around you? I'm not talking about what your public prayers sound like or what your contribution is to small group on Wednesday. I'm saying do your life actions match your testimony and invite others into gospel faith. Both saving and sanctifying. Blessed is the man who lives life in such a way that his love for God and his love for others is married in seamless devotion. Jesus is certainly giving the disciples motivation to mimic him here. If they do what he is calling them to do, they will be blessed. Obedience must accompany the knowledge that we have in order to receive the blessing that God gives. So let me end with this question. Do you want to be blessed? Do you want to be blessed? Put your faith in Christ and mimic Him. Let's pray. Father, I'm thankful that Christ humbled Himself to wash disciples' feet. The picture that that provides. It's a demonstration of your love. It's a symbol of the cross. It certainly is a pattern for conduct for the Christian believer, but God, I thank you so much that Jesus humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross, so that rebellious, like Dirty feet, men and women like us, can be reconciled to the Father. Father, I pray that we would indeed put our faith in Christ crucified and Him resurrected, and that we would, like Jesus, love you to the uttermost, and in doing so, love others to the uttermost. Father, make that true of us. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Stand with us as we sing in response. Because of this gospel, 
we can sing this song with confidence and conviction. Oh, my soul arise. Arise.